everyone seems to be talking about this right now. Critical theory, and especially critical race theory. It's history, what it means for the church, how we decipher, what do we affirm, and what do we, what do we need to reject. This is what we're going to be talking about on today's podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is Thursday, October 1st. Congratulations, we've made it to October. Now today we're examining another stream of the ideological waters we swim in, something that's old and historical but newest on the scene, and that is critical theory. We're also going to unpack the way critical race theory is an important topic in today's conversations around racism. And we'll identify it as followers of Jesus looking for points of agreement and disagreement on this ideology. Today I have with me one of my really good uh, conversational partners, Matt Barrios. Yeah, Dave, I love having conversations with you. And I hope people like the conversations that we have on our podcast because I have a blast whenever we, uh, we get to talk. I know. Usually the rule is if you're having fun, other people are having fun. But we just don't know. Hey. We just don't know. <laughs> um, today's a really important conversation, Matt, because um, by and large, uh, the reason why people have been very, very, very upset um, and heated in and around the conversations around race is because the, it feels like the quick eject button um, and reject button, if there's an eject, reject button, is um, blowing a whistle on critical race theory. As soon as you... Um, post anything about how black lives matter, anything in and around um, siding with people who are, you know, peacefully protesting or want to talk about um, black lives in the church today, people hit the button of critical race theory and how this is wrong and how this is like demonic and abhorrent to the gospel and all this stuff. And what we're going to talk about today, you and I, is, and you wrote a paper on this recently for the elders of the church, which was so good that I'm like, we have to do a podcast on this, Mm -hmm. is... Um, what we're saying is stop, don't hit eject, but let's be thinkers. Let's think through this theory and the things that, just like with anything in culture, how they align with uh, the unchangeable nature of the gospel and the kingdom of God and the things where there is misalignment and we have to be wise and reject these things or speak into them to channel them in ways that are that are life-giving for the flourishing of uh, of, of society and the inbreaking kingdom of God. Yes, totally. And I, I mean, I love your point about like, we need to be thinkers about this because I think part of uh, growth and maturity in Jesus uh, has to do with like the renewing of our minds, our ability mm-hmm. to to be circumspect, to be deep thinkers about things, to really investigate. And uh, yeah, and I know that's important uh, for you and me as like, you know, you have a pastor of our church, me a minister at Reality SF2. And and the importance of, uh, like, we have a responsibility to shepherd well, yeah. right? Uh, and uh, one of the things that I, I, like, wrote in my paper um, was basically, like, if we're, if our jobs to kind of, like, feed the sheep, feed Christ's sheep um, as under shepherds of Jesus, mm-hmm. we got to know the sheep's diet, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we need to That's know right. what we're feeding people. And, and that, you know, obviously a metaphor, like uh, hopefully the church potlucks will be starting again soon. But uh, mm-hmm. like we need to know, like, what is the 
the kind of ideological statements that we're encouraging people to latch on to. That's right. And is that stuff like biblical and Jesus's way, or is it something else that we're kind of swimming in as a culture? So that's why we wanted to talk about this. That's right. And since you wrote a paper on this, um, and because this was like one of your favorite subjects in undergrad, um, would you walk us through some of the history of critical uh, theory, like history of thought around critical theory? Let's just jump right. This is dive right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I like devoured this stuff as an undergrad. I took like every critical theory class I could take. And um, I would just like, and I still do, I'll just read it, you know, at my leisure, mm-hmm. just because I think uh, the conversation about critical theory is, um, it's it's a crucial one. It's actually important for us to engage with. I think it's got lots of good to it. And it also has some stuff where it's just kind of like, Hey, you know, we can't go all the way there because as a Jesus follower, we see it a different way, right? And that's what we'll be teasing out. But history of the thought comes from, uh, largely this was a philosophical movement stemming from more continental European philosophy, uh, lots of German thinkers, French thinkers. And they are, um, they're just having conversations about uh, uh, kind of from an existential perspective, like how do we interpret like phenomena that are happening around us. Like how could we ever know what's happening? What's the meaning of it? All of that. And uh, the people who really latched onto it, and I studied English as an undergrad, so some of the people who really latched onto this conversation were literary interpreters, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So they're trying to interpret literature in a cool, interesting way, and that's like a longstanding conversation uh, where they're trying to, discern what's the meaning of a text, a play, uh, an essay, whatever it might be. And this conversation evolved to include this more philosophy of language. Uh, how do we interpret phenomena in the world uh, to to look at not just how do we interpret texts, but how do we interpret anything? Mm-hmm. You know, like how, how do we interpret uh, news articles and how do we interpret like a, a person saying this or that uh, like on a Facebook post or you know, postcards or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. so this this is uh, why I think this is an important conversation because it's a very meta conversation about um, a philosophy of how do we interpret things. And if we are trying to answer the question of how do we even interpret the reality that we live in, then the sort of questions that we ask or don't ask are going to make all the difference, right? Mm-hmm. What we're even able to see so um, that's kind of like meta for a sec, but to zoom in on one particular piece of this, because it's a gigantic subject. Uh, you know, there's PhDs on PhDs of people who are just all about this. But I want to zoom in on one moment that feels um, one work that feels uh, almost like epitome of this, which is from the 1960s, where a lot of more modern critical theory um, is jumping out of that decade. And it's by a theorist named Paul Ricoeur. He was a philosophical anthropologist. He's studying uh, basically like uh, symbolism and systems of thinking and the problems with language and the fact that language is all arbitrary and how could we know what symbols mean. And, uh, and he started to ask questions about psychology with that, human psychology. Hmm. So he writes a text um, and it's called Freud and Philosophy where he's looking at Sigmund Freud and he's uh, kind of trying to understand human psychology and how we interpret things. And he um, 
and this is why I, why I want to highlight this, but he highlighted uh, a special movement that happened in the history of thought in this paper where he identified three masters of suspicion uh, kind of in the history of thought. And those were uh, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, I think all of them are German guys. Uh, so uh, Freud, Freud might be Austrian or something. But uh, so he's he's like looking at these big thinkers. I mean, these are monumental minds in the history of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And what he said that they all had in common was that they were masters of suspicion. And by that, he meant that they employ a way of interpreting the world through a hermeneutic or a philosophy of interpretation that is suspicious. Um, So it's not just about uh, what does this text or that person saying, what does it reveal about the meaning of what's happening? They're also interrogating a text for what does it conceal? Like what's the story that is not being told right now? All of that. So um, yeah, uh, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, like three big figures in that. And a lot of the kind of more contemporary critical theory conversation is growing out of that hermeneutic of suspicion where we're inter- interrogating uh, what's happening in reality, where it's, uh, you know institutions are suspect. And uh, the, um, you know, like, can we rely on what any politician is saying? And, you know, as we're recording this last night was the presidential debates. And yeah. like, that's like a big question. Can we actually trust what people are saying? And mm-hmm. part of it's a legitimate question in lots of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Marxism comes around, uh, is kind of like a, a central piece to that. Yeah, let's, click, Marxism, in the, let's click in the yeah. Marxism for a bit, because I feel like that's where yeah. most people pick up this conversation. Absolutely, yeah. So most of the time people who are, uh, you know, suspect of critical theory, you know, deriding critical theory, uh, call it Marxist, right? Yes, they call it, yeah, exactly. And so, real quick, like, Marxism is, uh, was initially an economic philosophy, right, which is one that is kind of showing the way that those who have uh, are oppressing those who don't have property. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he's advocating in, uh, you know, Communist Manifesto, Capital, like, like, the, the overthrow uh, and in fact, he would even say the violent overthrow of those who are the oppressors by those who are oppressed. So he sees the world as binary, oppressed versus oppressors or oppressed and oppressors. That's exactly it. And there's some who are, got the upper side of it and there's some who got the lower side of it. Exactly. And um, and so um, a Marxist uh, read on the world is really, really seeing who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed, and what will it look like to reverse that binary mm-hmm. uh you know bring the high people low and bring the low people high right yeah um which is basically what we feel what we see kind of playing out in like places like portland right mm-hmm. um places like where there's ongoing nightly protests around federal buildings or around places of power where um, we saw this in seattle for a bit too and then like yeah you know, like police free zone or whatever um, like overthrowing power um, and the suspect of power, all basically in this in this in this like paradigm, this worldview, it's um, all power is bad um, and it mm-hmm. needs to be overthrown. Power equals mm-hmm. oppression. They 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 are the oppressors, and the oppressed need to overthrow power. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that's 
that's kind of what it looks like is um, there there is a zooming in on power and power struggle, power dynamics that happens in this ideological perspective. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and in, in lots of ways, uh, this critical theory perspective, uh, and that's sort of a catch-all term again, like there's, there's lots of nuance to this conversation, but some of the, the hallmarks of it are that um, it's going to be really good at diagnosing um, structures or, or power structures, these kinds of things that um, marginalize people mm-hmm. and maybe even keep people marginalized, right? Um, at the same time, as the history of the thought keeps progressing, uh, the neo-Marxist perspective is not just that it's an economic thing, it's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh-huh. So every dimension of culture has binaries that need some sort of uh, revolution, right? Uh, and, you know, these these more contemporary uh, ne- you know, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist thinkers aren't necessarily advocating a, a violent overthrow or anything like that. You know, that's that's not necessarily the, the goal of those. But there is still a desire to name the power structures that exist in binaries like the, um, the male-female binary, um, the black-white binary. What's the privileged position that's oppressing the underprivileged position uh, yeah. that is being oppressed? Which actually starts moving into the critical race theory. This mm-hmm. is where critical theory um, and Marxism had its kind of roots um, in economics, and then it moves into social systems, um, and it moves into race. And this is where you know critical race theory kind of uh, comes from. And critical race theory mm-hmm. is where we actually get intersectionality as well. That's like a word that's thrown around a lot in mm-hmm. critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, this is really where the rubber meets the road for us today. Like, yeah. so I, I find it really helpful to know the history of thought, just to know, like, where are things coming from? Uh, yeah. Especially, I think it's part of being circumspect as a Christian to, like, yeah, is this a, a thing rooted in a biblical understanding of the world or is it from somewhere else right like and that's important to always be asking but where the rubber meets the road very practically for us in the world right now uh you know we we have things like police brutality happening we have uh experiences of um uh, like calls for reparations you know uh, affirmative action very very clear uh policy conversations Mm -hmm. that are going on uh, in the united states that have to do with the way people are treated racially, right, um, and, and racistly, right? So this is why um, the critical race theory conversation is, you know, it's a corner of the, the critical theory thing. And if I were to just, like, briefly trace that back for one second, um, a, a lot of the critical race theory com- conversation comes from the stream of thought um, sometimes referred to as post-colonialism. Uh, this is a critical theory kind of subtopic as well, which is uh, identifying the way colonial powers, uh, you know, England and the United States, like people who were um, colonizing other people groups, right, uh, came and brought a, a cultural values and a certain way of life that almost is meant to, uh, in the pr- perspective of postcolonial thought, squash out or oppress, um, you know, the way of life of other people. So... Um, especially with the United States history of slavery, right, where people are taken away from their homes, brought into a colonized system in the United States to make sure that 
plantations function and whatnot, right? Like that we can clearly see that there's some layers of like uh, the colonial imperative to like establish a nation that works in a certain way and, and, you know, is productive in this and that way that is like underlying our history, Mm -hmm. right? So the critical race theory conversation on like a theoretical level kind of uh, in the history of thought wise, like comes from partially this post-colonial uh, post-colonialism conversation. So just to kind of highlight that, because I think it is helpful. And the way that this, like you said, rubber meets the road, the way this breaks down the street level, like what people are talking about on the street right now is this still this power dynamic, right? It's the oppressed versus the oppressor or the oppressed versus the, um, yeah, or, or the oppressor versus the oppressed. So it's, it's, it's breaking up the world in these binary ways. And so the way this looks at like on street level right now is uh, in intersectionality is if you're white, male, straight, cisgender, you have the most power in America, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. even the world that you have the most. Yeah. And this is what people in, in, in intersectionality or critical race theory, this is like the theory that explains that, yes. right? And so the further way you move from that, you move away from white, male, straight, cisgender, the further way you move from that, the less power you have. So the most oppressed would be the exact opposite of mm-hmm. that. And so it's, it's seeing that. So if you are that, if you are white, male, straight, cisgender, um, now the, the way that this, this theory makes you see yourself as someone who is an oppressor, someone needs to be overthrown, someone who has uh, maybe white supremacy in your blood, someone who is um, by, and this is where people get really tripped up and triggered, is they think they're evil by being born white, male, straight, cisgender, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is where people just get like really, really, really messed up. So if when you're moving in on that, this is like um, two things I want to click into on this um, are, and by the way, we're going to talk about what we affirm and reject in a second. But I think what's important here to point out is that's kind of what's going on right now. So right now there's a power struggle between like, people who feel in America that they've been oppressed or people who have actually been oppressed and people who um, have historically been the kind of people who have oppressed, colonialized for another, mm-hmm. for another way of saying it. Yeah. And because it's been so long, it's like been generational, right? So it's happened so long. You have people who right now are, let's say they're, they're, they're white, um, they're male, they're straight. And they feel like I haven't done anything wrong. I love Jesus. I haven't done anything. I don't think I've done anything wrong, but now I am the enemy. And so they, they feel like I, I can't, I, I, there's no way in the world I can handle that. I don't know if I even agree with that. And so, and if they do, if they say, I don't agree with it, that's now in this paradigm called white fragility. And, oh, of course you mm-hmm. can't handle it. Cause you're, you're, it's your, it's white fragility. And then they're rejected mm-hmm. and there's like nothing you can do and they feel stuck. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're, and they're marginalized. And yeah. so you have this dynamic where you're like, I mean, excuse my language, damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing. Yeah. You feel stuck. And so this is where most people just like hit the eject button. Like I'm out of this conversation. I cannot be in this conversation or they fight it like head on. They start fighting this conversation. Like yeah. I reject critical race theory because I can't engage in it. And there's no way that I have power anymore in this conversation. And so therefore I have to reject it. Um, but I think yeah. there's a way to navigate through it. I think as a church, we have to find ways that um, this way of thinking needs to be 
exposed for um, its um, misalignment with biblical truth and the way that it is actually really aligned with mm-hmm. biblical justice as well. Yes, I agree. And you know, even just the, the way you're describing, you know, some some guy who, you know, we might go to church with who's white male, cisgender, so on, who's like, wait, am I being fragile? Because, you know, so on, like, uh, like I, I have some, some empathy for that. And, and it Absolutely. also makes sense, like where a person would be coming from with that, um, that state of mind would be uh, from what you and I, did, you know, covered in the last episode we recorded together about a more capitalist individualist perspective. Like, wait, yeah. I don't have a problem. This isn't me. Yeah. We're talking about things that happen in history or like That's right. this. is I, I don't this isn't me. I'm not an individual problem with when it comes to racism. Mm-hmm. You That's know? right. And that that is, um, you know, another another stream that people could be swimming in and like is kind of a mix in our world. But one thing just to highlight is that a more critical theory, critical race theory ideology is going to emphasize a higher uh, collectivism approach, right? Like where it's not yeah. as much about individuality as it is a collectivist thing. And, um, you know, so if if one layer to that is uh, white privilege, as we're talking about, it's mm-hmm. it's not only about individual, an individual's privilege. It's about a system of that, mm-hmm. right? A collectivist yeah. systemic privilege that exists, right? So, so you just said two words that I would imagine some people are listening to or triggered by. And they mm-hmm. would just blow the whistle on, you just used critical race theory language. So I want to click into yeah. the two of these things. Good. Now, usually there are um, a few different ways that critical race theory plays itself out in the, in the conversation as it is right now. One is um, a white privilege. The other one is reparations. The other one is affirmative action. The other one is systemic racism. Those are like the things, the way that these things play out. Now, um, Brian Loritz, Dr. Brian Loritz will refer to his lecture at the end of the podcast, but he's spoken to these things, I think, very well recently. Yeah, very well. And we'll have a link to that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But two things that I want to click into that you just kind of mentioned are, first, white privilege, and the second, systemic racism. These Mm -hmm. two things, um, when anyone in the church talks about systemic injustice or systemic racism, this is a... A, a, a red flag that goes up for some people to reject that pastor or that teacher's view of the world because they are now in the waters of critical theory, critical race theory, or, or even Black Lives Matter water, and therefore you must be rejected. So let's talk a little bit about that. What can yeah. we affirm and reject from this um, this idea, this 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 um, view of, of of the way the world is? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we as followers of Jesus, I mean, we, we go to the scripture for, um, you know, what's true, what's, what's, what's up and what's down. Right. So if we're going to talk about, um, something like racism, which I think I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't think racism is a sin, you know, right. Like it is a sin, like a, to, to dehumanize another person and to think them lower than you, like because of the color of their skin, that's just a sin, plain and simple. Right. Now, the question is, can sin be happening not just on an individual, you know, in an individual soul, but can it be happening in a system, like in a culture, right? Uh, And I think that's the question. Um, And in the scripture, we see that 
it is possible for sin to get institutionalized, to be to be systematized even, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, some, some examples of that, we look at Jesus when he arrives on the scene and um, they are living, you know, kind of first century, uh, living under a Roman empire that is being, uh, you know, it's the Roman empire's prerogative to collect taxes from people and, uh, you know, enforce a strict rule of law and make sure that, um, you know, the Roman way of life is the one that is most amplified and so on and so forth. And, um, and, and so like, we can see that there's like a sinfulness that can be pervasive to that. That's right. If it means like people are being mistreated and outcast and marginalized. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, you, you um, by the way, we're talking about systemic injustice right now specifically. Yes. We'll get, to, I guess we'll get to white privilege in a second. So, yeah. um, so systemic injustice, when we say systemic racism or systemic injustice, um, the, when you reject outright systemic injustice, what you're rejecting is the reality that sin can get into systems. And mm-hmm. that, by rejecting that, by rejecting systemic injustice or even systemic racism, you're rejecting a reality that the Bible affirms over and over and over and over again. From mm-hmm. Exodus, where there was systemic injustice and oppression done by Egypt towards the Hebrew people, that God um, went against and overthrew and, um, and completely like, um, judged to Mm -hmm. Babylon and the people of God again being, um, oppressed to Roman occupation. And even, even more than that, Jesus, when he stepped into Roman occupation, um, he saw systemic injustice even in the religious leaders. This is why you had the harshest rebuke for the Pharisees and religious leaders. So to ignore the fact that sin can get into systems through the person, through people who then create systems that then oppress other people, mm-hmm. you have to, every Christian has to acknowledge that is a reality and a possibility, both of them, yes. a possibility and a reality. So um, systemic injustice is a possibility and reality systemic racism that's been done in our country um, is both a um, a historic fact and a reality that's probably not written in the laws anymore but carried out this is kind of mm-hmm. what we're saying in our world it's still carried out in in, in all kinds of ways so i think yes. it's important to go you can't blow the whistle when someone says systemic injustice and say okay that's critical theory and i have to reject mm-hmm. it no stop sure. this was this is a part of the scriptures that yeah. we can argue how it plays itself out and whether you're culpable whether you are guilty mm-hmm. of the sin or not but we yeah. have to first acknowledge that um that that injustices mo- make its way into systems and yeah. and play itself out. Now, if systemic injustice triggers you, that word systemic racism or systemic injustice triggers you, and you know what? It might trigger a lot of, a lot of people. Let me use a word that Tim Keller uses in his wonderful paper that we'll recommend at the end of this podcast as well. He calls it institutionalized sin, mm-hmm. which might be, I think, a, probably a better way of describing it. Yeah, but it's basically the same thing. Maybe it's less triggering for you. And you mm-hmm. had something that you pointed out in your paper, Matt, that I want you to unpack right now, which is really important to do in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, even even the way that you just reframed the conversation, 
as institutionalized sin, I think is something that we, we as followers of Jesus will want to do when engaging um, critical theory, critical race theory, which is it, you know, it's a, it's a movement or, you know, ideology that has its own jargon. Um, And, and as much as possible, we'll want to pivot to like, as much as we can engage it uh, in its own terms, like to also think what is the biblical version of that? And is there a biblical version of that? Right. So, um, the biblical language. Yeah. What's the biblical language, right. right. That we can use for this. Right. So, um, and I think by and large, um, sin as a concept, uh, within like Christian theology is crucial for us to understand. It's so important. I mean, sin is the pathway to, uh, like confession, repentance, redemption, all of that. It, it's like the, the, um, it's the, the first jab in a one, two punch that leads to like perfect love, right. And grace. So I'd say, uh, yeah, like having language for sin is important. And just one more thing I want to identify that and read it in scripture. This is from Daniel nine. And Dave, you actually helped me see this, um, as you were preaching through Daniel a few years ago, that it was really powerful, but this idea that, um, sin can be a collective thing mm-hmm. and it can even be a generational thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, it says in uh, Daniel nine, um, that he's like reading through the book of Jeremiah and he's coming to realize, um, that like this desolation of Jerusalem and the judgment God had towards Jerusalem, it's uh, it it still applies to him, and he needs to fast and be in sackcloth and ashes and pray and petition. And this is his prayer. He says, "Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love of those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled." We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. So in this Daniel 9 verse, we're, we're hearing this collective responsibility for sin. And it's not even sin that Daniel is doing personally. It's yeah. like the sins of Israel, even back into the past, that he's taking responsibility for and petitioning God for saying, we have done this. And, and I think that's powerful. And what's so fascinating about that is Daniel has zero recorded sin. Usually Bible characters get their sin recorded. Daniel has zero <laughs> yeah. recorded sin. Not that he was sinless, but he has zero recorded sin. And I think that's the, that's kind of like the author's setup for Daniel nine, where he says, we have sin. And you, when you read the story, you're yeah. like, wait, Daniel didn't, I mean, we have zero record. He's right. only noble. He's only faithful. And he uh-huh. said, we've done this. And there's part of me that thinks this, and this is my, I'll just pause and say, this is my, this is like a pastoral moment here. So if you're listening to this, no matter who you are, I think it's really important for every single American to say, we, we have participated in the sin of racism. To do that, you're not a critical theorist. You're not siding with BLM as the organizational values of BLM, Black Lives Matter, you are simply saying what's true, mm-hmm. that America has a, a history of racism that has demonized the other written in its documents, founding documents. And we've mm-hmm. done this. We participate in this. I think it's important to start there. I think that's 
getting to humility. Yes. Listening, saying, yeah, there has been systemic injustice woven into our laws and constitution and even um, in the way it's played out in our world today. Does it, that doesn't, again, that doesn't make you a Marxist. That doesn't make you um, what, what, you know, what, we, what people want to deem you in the church right now. That makes you, I think that makes you a biblical Christian yes. American that says, yeah, there's parts um, that I have corporate, corporate responsibility in. So I think that's really important. The yes. second thing I want to click into is white privilege. So here's here's how I want to set this up. This is, again, another yeah. thing that comes out of uh, um, C, C, CRT. Um, white privilege. Now, I'll say this. I think I said this last uh, on Tuesday. Privilege yeah. is not inherently bad. Right. If privilege is bad, Jesus was bad because Jesus is the most privileged person who's ever lived. He's literally yeah. comes it's, from... The bosom of the father, right? The heart yeah, it's hard father. to be more privileged than sitting on the throne of the universe, right? Like, kind of hard. I, I mean, that's that's like his origin story, you know? Yes. So allow that just to like eat. Like some people that like feel like I didn't choose to be born in a wealthy white family, and I am, you know, straight, cisgender, like whatever. I didn't choose that. I just want. Yeah, yeah. Guess what? You're not guilty for that. So whoever's mm. trying to make you feel guilty for that, like, no, no. No, no one in the church should make you feel guilty for that. I think the, the emphasis is on, on for you to own that, at least own that you've, been, you've grown a privilege. So if, you're, if you are white, I think it's really important to own the fact that, A, racism is a social construct. It is not, um, is not what God intends for his people to live. And at the same time, you've grown up with a certain kind of privilege being white in America. It's just acknowledge it. Just acknowledge, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have to steward this privilege. If you've grown up yes. with means, no matter what um, what race you are, ethnicity you are in America, if you've grown up with means and access to education and access to to um, um, access to uh, like privilege in the way you live or what what where you live, you know, um, and the way you live, just acknowledge that that's that you are privileged. It's it, it's really important to just acknowledge that you. You grew up with privilege, and privilege does not equal evil. It simply means what Jesus meant with privilege is you have to see it, acknowledge it, and then use it and leverage it for the sake yes. of the other. When you don't acknowledge your privilege, you're not able to leverage it for the sake of others. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the part where when people just reject, you know, there's no such thing as white privilege. They're actually, they're actually I mean is such thing as white privilege there is in america there just is um and if you if you don't acknowledge that then i think it's really important just to say there is and that doesn't mean it's evil and or i'm evil or i'm yeah. bad it just means yeah. i have to see it so that i could a enter into the story of someone else's experience yeah. um, if they're a person of color in america or especially if um being black in america and to enter into their experience to listen and then mm -hmm. to know I can, I can leverage and see yes. my privilege as a way to use it um, for the sake of others. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, like there's, there's white privilege, there's, there's privilege around um, gender and economic class and so on and so forth. Like, and the, the reality is, is that there's, there, like all of us have some sort of privilege that we exist with, right? 
Yeah. And the call for every person as a follower of Jesus is to get humble with your privilege. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's it, good. It's like across the board, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth or, or like have nothing. Like the call for every single follower of Jesus is to get humble. Now, um, a lot of us, that means exactly what you're saying, Dave, take an inventory of the ways that we are privileged. And then now, how do how do I be humble around that and use that towards the service of others, right? right. Like, um, we all have a, a mandate to love our neighbors, and that means lifting them up, considering them mm-hmm. as higher than us, right? Like, thinking that they matter more than us. And, uh, and it's hard to do that if we think we're above them frankly. Like uh, if if we don't choose humility, then we're going to like have trouble. We're going to break our backs trying to lift people up if we don't get below them. Right. That's right. So it's crucial that we as followers of Jesus hear and respond obediently to the call of humility that Jesus gives yeah. us. Yeah. And I think it's even hard to lift people up when you when you wrongly assume that you are on the same level as them. Hmm. You know, I think That's there is so something true. there like it's hard to it's hard to help someone when when they see you as someone who is privileged but you're like oh i don't i think that you have the same access as i do you're naive you know you're naive (laughs) they don't have that same access you do they weren't born in the same way you were born it's not that you think that you are above them but it's uh, understanding the way that the 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 dynamics work to where you see you can see yourself as like i want to as, as humble as i can use um the advantages that I've been given um, to disadvantage myself for your your advantage. You know, that's mm-hmm. basically, I, I believe that's like the heart of the gospel shown in Jesus through Philippians chapter two. Yes. And so, you know, if Jesus came to earth and was like, you know, I didn't come from heaven. I just, I would just, I'm just like everyone else. You know, he, <laughs> that, that, I, I, that would be really, I, I think it's really important that he knows that actually I'm from the father I'm going back to the Father. I'm mm-hmm. humbling myself so that I can actually lift you up yes. to become w- with me with the Father. If you don't, if he doesn't even know he's from the Father, he doesn't even know his privilege, then he he can't disadvantage himself for the sake of lifting someone else up. So yeah. I think it just starts there. It just it just starts there. And yeah. I think what's so insidious about people rejecting. Um, rejecting critical race theory and these triggering words without thinking rightly through them is they actually can't enter in, I think, into our cultural moment um, Mm -hmm. of pain for people of color in our nation um, and actually of biblical justice. Yes. And I think that's like the most, the thing that makes me, that keeps me up at night, that breaks my heart and infuriates me at the same time. Um, So let's end here. Um, Mm -hmm. What critical theory ideology, you know, what can we agree with about it? Like, what's yeah. some things that we can, that, oh, like, wow, yeah, this is actually biblical land. We can align with it. What are yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think we've spoken to to some of these in detail, but on a, on a big picture in more summary, like critical theory and critical race theory, um, I mean, these as interpretive lenses are really good at helping us diagnose what's happening, right? And seeing the things that are hard to spot, actually. Um, Mm. And part of that is because, um, yeah, like uh, some of these, it takes a keen eye 
to identify and like interpret what's going on when um, marginalization, like it's, it can be sort of swept under the rug, right? Uh, and people want to avoid seeing it even, right? So that's one thing that the critical theory ideology that we can agree with as followers of Jesus, because as followers of Jesus, we are committed to the cause of the the downtrodden, the poor, the oppressed. Like that's what Jesus says that he's about. That's what we are about as his followers. And we can actually really thank a critical theory ideology for helping us see, um, you know, the plight of the the poor and the oppressed, because mm-hmm. that is near to the heart of God. That is. I mean, I think that I think we talked about this in the in the capitalism episode where mm-hmm. um, the the movement of God is to bring the high low. <laughs> and that's just. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's written all over the Tower of Babel. That's written. Yes. David and David on his rooftop, looking down at Bathsheba, yes. and God humbles him and brings him low. This is the song of Mary where she says, you've lifted up the humble. This is what John the Baptist was doing, bringing everything high thing low. If you don't see that in the scriptures, I, I, I just, it's just, you know, it's yeah. kind of the part of biblical illiteracy that is really hard. If you can't see that, you know, like if there's a movement, an ideological movement that, that with a focus on, um, on the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed, you should be able to go, oh, that sounds like the heart of God. Now, there's probably 100% difference in how they want to go about hum- lifting yeah. up the low, which is yeah. where we're going to talk about where it's completely, it takes a left turn and it's completely wrong. Um, but we can at least agree there. I love that. Um, yes. So then what do we, so let's talk about what we need to, what do we need to re- reject with uh, critical theory? What yeah. do we have to be... Uh, you know, I set up the question, but let me start. <laughs> let me start by answering. I don't know if that's even a thing, sure. but let me just say this. I want to say this as a, as a pastor. Um, I think I think it's important. I think I just need to say this explicitly. Um, Black Lives Matter, as a as a statement of fact, as a as a um, as a movement that that is a rallying cry around like getting getting an getting an eye towards people who have been systemically oppressed in our nation's history and in some ways still are in pockets of our nation, maybe maybe all over our nation, is a very important thing to stop and listen to and even join and say, yeah, they do, Black Lives Matter. It's really important to say that and to stand with that. As an organization, it's really important to distinguish, yeah, a lot of the things that the organization the official organization stands for is so abhorrent to the gospel and to biblical. I listened to a podcast where a um, very well-known black preacher was saying, what's different about the black lives movement matter is not starting in the basement of black churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a bunch of black leaders, pastors leading it, black pastors leading the movement. Because that's different than in the sixties and in um, political movements around uh, black lives in the, in the, in the past. And that's different. Mm-hmm. And you have to stop and ask yourself why that is. Not that um, that you shouldn't say Black Lives Matter or peacefully protest and march for Black Lives um, because of systemic injustice. That's really important to do. But it's really important to know that that there's a lot of uh, the movement that is um, very abhorrent to the way of Jesus. And just to mm-hmm. distinguish that is really, really important. Yeah. Um, and I think that people should be able to be nuanced. I think that when someone posts yeah. something about Black Lives on their socials or whatever 
uh, I think it'd be really bad to just all of a sudden assume that they they are for the dismantling of the nuclear family. They're they they're dismantling the patriarchy of the biblical order of the family. Like that's just so wrong to assume. Um, yeah. And I think that that might even be Marxist in its theory of suspicion, like leading with suspicion. They might be yeah. more critical theories than they think they are. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're you're getting right into um, some of what what we need to be careful with with these ideological uh, this ideological current and things that I think we need to reject as followers of Jesus, which is um, yeah, I, I highlighted it in the in the intro kind of historical background, but a, a hermeneutic of suspicion, a way of interpreting everything is suspect. Um, and here's just a quick definition of suspicion. Um, it's the act or an instance of suspecting guilt, a wrong, uh, a wrong, harmfulness, or so on, with little or no supporting evidence. Mm. And I think uh, as, as followers of Jesus, um, I, I don't think suspicion should be our, uh, you know, our, our uh, stance, you know, with how we how we go about things and, you know, interpret what people are saying and uh, interpret institutions. Like, I think there, um, as much as I think there is room to be, to give a critical eye to things and be curious if we have questions and all of that. I think, um, yeah, we, we just need to have evidence, right? Like if we're suspect, like we, there needs to be some supporting evidence to, to kind of clarify that claim. And, um, in doing that, we don't end up accidentally demonizing people or institutions that are that aren't that bad or are, are doing their best or whatever it might be, you know. So, um, so one one kind of piece to ways we need to distinguish ourselves as Christians is coming with a perspective of grace and yeah. and a deep commitment belief that God is on a mission for the redemption of all things, the renewal of all things. And it's definitely going to take a lot more grace than I think you and I might naturally want to yeah. do on our own power. You know, we're going to have to tap into like Holy Spirit levels of forgiveness and um, like willingness to see things unfold and call for justice and also believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for mm. when a person does confess their their wrongdoing or sin and, you know, even their racism or whatever it might be that forgiveness is like really, really there and present. And Jesus welcomes people with open, open arms. And I hope we as followers of Jesus similarly do. Um, yeah. uh, and, and that we lead with that rather than like only after people have earned it. Right. Uh, yeah. But we automatically come with grace. I think that's so good, Matt. The other thing I want to add to that is that the way that um, God made our brains uh, and wired our brains is that when we, um, see someone as not my people hmm. uh, we we the brain demonizes them and finds ways to resist them and even fight like your brain just yeah. wants to fight and I think uh, typically right now in the world it feels like if someone is for or against you know either the black lives movement that we demonize them and they're the other if they're hmm. A different political party if they're for biden or for mm -hmm. trump they're not my people you know yeah um and way down the list is if they're a christian and i think mm -hmm. that that is like like so far from the heart of jesus for his people like the first mm -hmm. thing he's like are you my pe are you are you follow jesus then you're my people um 
and and I don't have to fight you. Like you and I could could uh, intellectually spar and have conversation, but you're my people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the hardest thing right now is that we're just we yeah. we put people in the category of other and then we demonize them and then we destroy their character. Mm-hmm. And that's that's abhorrent. That's that's like demonic. Yeah. It's really not from God. Yeah. Um and I think that's right, Dave. And I think that is like one of those pieces that, um, yeah, critical theory, ideology, being too suspicious uh, of people, it, it can get tribalistic in that way and uh, mm-hmm. and then keep people from integrating lovingly with one another yeah. and believing each other and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, so that's something that we'll need to reject. And one last thing that I, I would say we need to uh, reject in this ideology is um, so if it's really good at diagnosing what's happening and seeing like the, the plight of the oppressed and, and everything, I don't think it's really good at offering remedies. Um, yeah, that's right. So uh, especially if the, the cues it's taking are from um, like more Marxist revolutionary or um, kind of Jacques Derrida deconstruction style stuff where um, uh, I think it ends up, and this is, this is my juke for the day, you know, like it ends up playing the same game as Mm -hmm. a capitalist perspective, which is Mm -hmm. it's about coming out on the top, right? Like it, maybe you, you're on the lower part of the binary, you're the oppressed right now, but through revolution, you get to the top. And so it ends up playing the same game of dominance. Um, And, and it's like, you know, two soccer teams playing against each other and they're playing they're They're, they're like, like fighting hard tooth and nail to like beat each other at this game. And um, yeah, and maybe the the lower part of the binary ends up winning or maybe the upper part of the binary like keeps winning. But uh, the point being like, it's still about winning and being dominant. And this is where Jesus like changes the game entirely. And he says, it's not about getting up on top. It's actually about getting lower lower than you can imagine it's about being humble it's about believing that like literally everybody matters more than you like and to be on that level of like humility that's the jesus call so that god can lift you up yeah that's that's the because there is a human instinct to want to save your life and be on top and jesus doesn't reject that he says just you have to do it this way you save your life by losing your life yeah you go high by getting low yes because in due time i will lift you up mm-hmm. i will exalt you right yes so the instinct of being you know this is why reward in heaven and actually trying to put your treasure in heaven so that it it doesn't get destroyed and so that you get you know a crown of righteousness in heaven and so that you get that that is still woven in all of that instinct to want to like be good at something or be or even come out ahead but it has to be in god's economy and god's math mm-hmm. um and i think that is that's i think what you said is completely important with the understanding because god is going to lift you up in due time yes he'll take um, care of it it's in his hands yes um i thought of something we're really deep in this podcast so i think i it's know time for, uh, uh, yeah we're almost an hour in or something yeah, I love it's, it. t- it's time for a star wars this was over. never going to be a short podcast i think we both no no that. like yeah. there's just so much to say but I remember when uh, the the latest trilogy of Star Wars came out, uh-huh. um, whatever the one was with 
Kylo Ren and the first, the, yeah. the, what installment with that was number seven, whatever. Yeah. I remember there was, uh, the trailers came out and no one knew the, the storyline. And there was an op-ed written that I read on the storyline. They said, I, I, this is what I hope the storyline for the, for the, the new star Wars is, is that the, the rebel Alliance becomes the thing that needs to be overthrown because that's what happens in every oppressed oppressor situation is that when the oppressed or the rebels overthrow the, 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 the powers, they mm. themselves become the oppressor. Mm. And I hope it's the rebel alliance having to be overthrown because it's gotten evil. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that would be such a good storyline story. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think what you said was completely right. If, if it's the oppressed trying to th- overthrow the oppressor, then eventually the oppressor becomes, uh, the oppressed becomes the oppressor and yes. the power dynamics shift. And then you have this circular, circular thing. That's just, it, it's yeah. not the way of Jesus. And Jesus actually has a way for the world to be made right. It's yes. through humility and, and trusting in the knowledge and the way of God and the yeah. way of Jesus, you know? And I think that that's, re- that's like kingdom come stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. In closing, I think I've said that like a pastor three times <laughs> in the show notes, we will have a link to Dr. Brian Loritz. Um, he just gave a lecture on critical race theory that clicked into um, all, like some of the stuff that we've been talking to, but he clicked specifically into white privilege and white supremacy, reparations, affirmative action, systemic racism. He just gave it at my good friend, John Mark's church um, and in Bridgetown. Uh, we'll put the link there. It was a really excellent um, uh, lecture. And we'll also put a, a um, link to... Dr. Timothy Keller, he just wrote something recently on critical race theory and um, and justice. And it's a fairly long article, but it's super important. And I think these two things help frame kind of what we've been talking about, but um, talking about as application, um, your paper, Matt, framed up kind of history for us, and we wanted mm-hmm. to go from like from there. So yeah. we want to commend those things to you to keep this conversation going. Thank you so much for listening uh, for the, to this long podcast, but we think it's important. Hopefully this is helpful to unlock some things, to bring some unity around some things in our church, maybe even beyond our church. Um, so yeah, any final final words, Matt? Final, final, final words? Yeah, yeah. Okay, in closing, I'll, I'll add one of my own, my own in closings. Um, yeah, be humble. Let's be humble together. I think that it's just very, very good to to think that nothing's below us and that we get... Instead, we get to lift others up by thinking that they actually are more important. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's just so such a loving and beautiful way to live. And I'm so grateful that Jesus utterly changed the game by introducing that to us. That's right. So, uh, yeah, That's let's be humble. I love that. I can't end with anything better than that. So peace be with you all. Thank you so much for listening.